We continue our look at Alabama's new normal amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Businesses and public attractions have started to reopen, including the Huntsville Botanical Garden. Going out into nature with these beautiful open areas is truly restful. People can come here and know that they are safe. With more parents heading back to their jobs, they're depending on child daycares to reopen. You're going to have to care for the children to the best of your ability, and you're not going to be able to ask the child to sit in one space for eight hours and not go play with their friends. State officials have said bringing businesses back online depends on data and testing. As the state opens back up more, this is not a time for people to let their guard down. And we'll hear how to use science to play defense against coronavirus infection. Alabama's new normal, next on the Public Radio Hour, here on 89.3 Huntsville. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill, with Katie Ganaway. Over the next few episodes, we're exploring this strange new COVID-19 reality we're living in as we try to figure out what a new normal looks and feels like here in Alabama. In the next hour, we'll hear from Camille Bennett, daycare business owner and founder of the Alabama Child Care Coalition. She'll tell us about challenges at child daycares as parents start heading back to work. Dr. Karen Landers with the State Department of Health will update us on testing and how that will guide the reopening of Alabama. And Hudson Alpha's Dr. Neil Lamb provides insight on testing, herd immunity, and how you can play solid coronavirus defense as regular business resumes. Last week, the Huntsville Botanical Garden reopened its gates on a limited scale, reestablishing a valuable resource to help provide us with a sense of calm and peace in these turbulent times. The garden has a new CEO, Sue Wagner, who comes to Huntsville after helping lead efforts at the Adler Planetarium and the Morton Arboretum near Chicago. Wagner says her first spring in Huntsville is not quite what she expected. You know, this spring has been quite different. We had to close the garden March 17th uh, in response to the CDC guidelines and anticipation that COVID-19 could really hit us hard here. We wanted staff to be safe. We wanted volunteers to be safe and our visitors to be safe. And so we closed and uh, took it as an opportunity to really think about um, how do we want to continue to serve uh, the greater community and also move forward with our plant conservation efforts. And so we've emerged like a butterfly from the chrysalis nice. and opened. And uh, we're really excited to be able to serve the public in a way that helps people with their own peace of mind. And I mean, there's so many people right now who are feeling quite anxious with this COVID-19 situation and the garden can offer respite. So working at the planetarium and the previous botanical garden, uh, I can't imagine you would have experienced anything quite like this. No, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very interesting experience. I know that, uh, you know, my, my fellow garden CEOs and directors are all managing uh, the COVID-19 situation in their own gardens. And each garden is different. Each garden has different accessibility. Uh, and, and in some cases, it's an opportunity. In some cases, garden uh, accessibility can become uh, difficult depending on what state they're in. 
Uh, so, ex- for example, I came from Illinois, and they're under pretty strict lockdown with Governor Pritzker right now. And uh, my fellow garden CEOs have closed their gardens and continue to stay closed. So there are many people who really want to visit the garden and are not able to because, uh, you know, Governor Pritzker said, you know, it's a stay-at-home, stay-at-home phase right now. So in our situation, because Governor Ivey was, you know, saying, okay, let's let's open carefully, let's have safer at home, uh, we we were able to contact the attorney general and double check and make sure it was okay for us to be open, knowing that we have all of this beautiful outdoor space in which people can really safely socially distance. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about is considering how much open area there is here at the garden. Yeah. Obviously, you have some places that are, mm-hmm. you know, uh, touch sensitive and in, in indoor areas. Mm-hmm. What went into that initial decision to close? Was it something that you even had to consider? Was it something that you were forced to do? Uh, it was something that we were considering, you know, taking the pulse of the pandemic itself and anticipating that it could get worse. We thought it was best uh, not knowing what we know now to close to the public. We were being proactive rather than reactive and saying we care very much about our volunteer core. We want them to be safe. They are much of our volunteer core is in a high risk category and we wanted them to stay home. And we also wanted to protect staff as well and uh, mitigate as much as possible any risk to staff working here. So we we closed and we had those essential staff work here because it's okay for them to be in the fresh air and and work if they're in horticulture. But um, many of us worked from home during that time. I think one thing people don't understand about the garden is just how many volunteers you have. It is an army of of people uh, to consider. And you've spoken a couple of times about the importance of keep, keeping people safe, which I know yes. has been a primary concern for other businesses and operations yes. and attractions and things like that. So what what has changed now uh, in terms of like when this whole thing started and we were trying to figure out what was really going on uh, to now? It's I assume that it's not all the volunteers coming back. It's not all the staff. What, what, what sort of what sort of changes happened to allow you to bring some people back in? Well, what changes happened is that um, we're essentially paying attention to what the CDC is saying uh, and understanding where the risks are. And we're looking at how do we uh, reduce risk wherever possible, but allow people to uh, experience the benefits of the garden, whether they're staff, volunteers, or visitors. And currently, uh, we're at uh, we're starting to increase the number of staff we have again uh, to get to a place where we can, you know, be fully staffed and take care of the garden and take care of our visitors. Uh, we do not currently have volunteers here right now. Our staff really need to focus on getting back up to speed and and doing the work that's essential to the garden. But we will be welcoming volunteers back soon. Uh, but again, it's for their safety and it's for also for the staff as well who need to manage so much at this time since we just opened. So so what are the risk areas for the Huntsville Botanical Garden? I know the Purdy Butterfly House is not reopened. What right. are the areas here that you're keeping an eye on? We're keeping an eye on uh, passing through the visitor, you know, through the guest center. Um, the you probably the saw the doors open. are yep. wide open. And, you know, as you park your car, 
Uh, you'll see arrows that are directing you to the building so that, and, and, and uh, social distancing spaces placed on the sidewalks and inside the building so that people know where they can stand. We have touch-free uh, check-in. Uh, we invite members and visitors to purchase tickets online to come to the garden. And what that does is it allows us to time visit so that we don't have a surge of visitors coming in at once. We have people pulsing in, which makes it very pleasant for everyone who's been visiting. And it's a prepaid ticket situation? Is that uh, right? for, yes, it is prepaid uh, with the exception of members who have a membership. So they just have a voucher ticket that allows them to come to the right. garden at a certain time. We have time tickets that um, that are uh, blocked every 30 minutes, and we allow 50 or 60 people, depending on, well, we're kind of experimenting the last few days. It's Now we're up to 60 people per half hour. And when you look at the surroundings here, that's not a problem to have 60 people here per half hour. So we're seeing really good response to that, and we're seeing and we're hearing from not only our members, but visitors saying they're so grateful to be able to come back to the garden while it's open. And now there are certain areas of the garden that are closed to the public right now due to uh, the impact of the, the coronavirus. We want to make sure we keep people safe by keeping them outdoors. And so you mentioned the Butterfly House. That is currently closed, but we're planning on opening it soon. We just, I don't have a date for you today, but we are looking at opening the Butterfly House and uh, using time ticket approach as well so that we can meter how many people are going into the house and leaving the house. And the Children's Garden is currently closed as well. There's uh, a tendency for children to cluster together and, and start to you know be very tempted not to practice social distancing. So by keeping the beloved Children's Garden closed right now, we're assuring the public that we have a lot of open space for kids to run around in. We're talking with Sue Wagner, the new CEO of Huntsville Botanical Garden. And uh, Sue, when people hear this interview, it will be Thursday night. Uh, we're here on the public radio hour, and you'll mm -hmm. be, I guess, at the, the, the one-week mark of, of reopening. Yes. Um, this past weekend was your first sort of opening the gates to the public. Yes. How did it go? The weather was fantastic. It went really well. Uh, we had over 668 visitors that was you on the weekend. Expecting more or less? We were hoping we would have a number something like that and in fact we increased the amount of people who could enter the garden yesterday because there was such an outpouring of desire to come to the garden and we saw that there was there were no negative effects so uh, we're very excited about that number uh, and if we compare it to the past uh, we looked at other Mother's Day weekends, and uh, we were a little over a thousand for a Mother's Day weekend. So landing at six sixty-eight is pretty darn good. So Absolutely. we're really happy. Well, and we've seen uh, so many more people enjoying the outdoors. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot more people are gardening than than, than normally because they're trying to find things to do at home. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like the garden is kind of like built for this sort of thing. It is. It's definitely, you know, a, a, a bright spot in our lives, knowing that you can go to the garden and get a sense of peace and, and respite. Uh, you know, that's really what we need in this very unprecedented time. Uh, and, and we're busy making plans for how we can offer opportunities to come to the garden in the future and in the evening as well in new ways than we have before. We know that the garden plays an essential role to the community, feeling better, having a stronger sense of well-being and so on. And we're rising to that challenge and we'll be offering new opportunities in the near future. 
Yeah, that sense of peace is absolutely critical as we try to figure out what the new normal is, which is what we're exploring uh, here on the Public Radio Hour over the next few weeks. So uh, this is sort of a two-parter, Sue. First of all, uh, if you can, what is the new normal for the Huntsville Botanical Garden? What is your new normal here? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, The new normal is uh, quite literally practicing social distancing but doing it in a way that feels less restrictive. Uh, going out into nature with these beautiful open areas or uh, you know, woodlands or uh, flower gardens is truly restful. And that was the old normal, and we're bringing that old normal right into the new normal. It's just about you know, the garden is being responsible and that we are pacing that visitation so that people can come here and know that they are safe. And that is going to be our new normal. It's just looking for opportunities for people to engage in nature that helps them feel better and makes them feel safe, too, during this unprecedented time. And it doesn't feel so far away from the old normal, which is kind of nice. And speaking of far away, uh, dear listeners, Sue and I are practicing social distancing here. We are. We're doing Hello the down there. Hey, <laughs> we're doing the interview here uh, uh, in, in the guest area, uh, yeah. one of the rooms in the guest uh, area of the garden. Um, we're six feet apart, uh, and uh, we're hoping that uh, you're doing that and seeing that out in the community as well. So now, Sue, for you personally, what is your new normal? What sort of things have you done to change in your daily life, your daily routine, shopping, not shopping, uh, seeing neighbors, seeing friends? I mean, what, what has changed for you? What's your new normal? Well, what's changed for me uh, prior to COVID-19, I was really enjoying getting out into the community and meeting new people, um, really understanding this wonderful community I'm in. And, uh, you know, since this all came to be, I really have practiced safe at home, stay at home. Uh, I, I was working from home for about a week and a half and then started to come into the garden because nobody was here, so I could work Either here. Way, you know. it, it was okay. I was extremely distant from everyone else. Um, I have not shopped. I have not I have not gone to some of my new haunts. I haven't gone anywhere, essentially, because I really want to practice, uh, you know, sanitize and safe distance and all of those things that um, we're hearing from our local officials and the CDC guidelines. And I think that's one challenge that probably almost everyone out there is having is figuring out where to move forward. How do you re-engage? So mm-hmm. in terms of your own personal safety and comfort level uh, are you able to look ahead and see a point where okay i feel like i might be able to go back to a, to a restaurant or go back uh, shopping again or go to a friend's house or something like that have you been able to to sort of put your finger on that yet yeah i've been thinking a lot about that um you know i think we all crave some aspect of being social with others and being, you know, not maybe in physical contact with others, uh, but but definitely uh, engaging in, uh, you know, camaraderie downtown, you know, going to restaurants um, with with an understanding that if there's 50% capacity built in, uh, that you have some of that distancing that you need in order to feel safe. Um, I think what will change in the future is, uh, like when I saw you this morning, I wanted to go shake your hand and I Me stayed too. back. Just I just wanted yeah. to shake your hand. And, uh, you know, and I remember, you know, when I would, 
uh, encounter uh, many of our community members early on, we were already becoming a bit wary going, well, no, I don't think we're going to hug. I don't think we're going to shake today. And, and I see that I think that habit needs to probably stay in place for quite a bit of time. I mean, it does. Do, do you have a special code us. here at the garden, like elbow bump? I know some people kick their feet together or, 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 <laughs> or, or is it more like just a we know, are a just friendly waving <laughs> and hey and just really you know just showing that that care and compassion through our eyes and through our body language um we're we're happy to see each other and we're happy to be together we're just six feet apart that was sue wagner the new ceo of the huntsville botanical garden She says over the next few weeks, they'll be closely monitoring the behavior of their guests, and if everyone is being safe, they'll start opening up more activities, like the Children's Garden, the Purdy Butterfly House, and special evening activities. So do the right thing, folks. It's all up to us. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill, with Katie Ganaway. We're exploring Alabama's new normal as we adjust to our strange new COVID-19 reality. One especially harsh aspect of this reality is, until we develop vaccines and antibody tests, it's hard to know if you or your neighbor is infected and potentially spreading the coronavirus. But despite that, there are bills to pay, so many people need to get back to work. And for some parents, that also means finding daycare for their children. So as daycare facilities reopen, there are plenty of questions about how to keep those workers, children, and their families safe. Katie Ganaway spoke with Camille Bennett, daycare business owner and founder of the Alabama Child Care Coalition. Bennett says when Governor Kay Ivey announced the initial stay-at-home order, she had to move fast. We were watching the news, and Dr. Scott Harris said, you know, if you have child care centers, we recommend that you close right now. You're not going to be able to socially distance those children, and so we recommend that you close. Your business is financially impacted, so can you talk on what sort of changes you've seen there in that regard? Between March 16th and April 6th did provide pretty substantial support for child care centers, and I say that to say that's not for all child care centers. It's based on how many children receive child care subsidies in your center. Now, for our centers, the majority of our children receive child care subsidies. So when Alabama provides support for children that have child care subsidies, we definitely benefit from that. But after April 6th, what Alabama did was cut that support in half, which was still helpful but um, definitely affected the way we had to move forward. And what we had to do was be proficient at finding resources on our own. And what sorts of resources were those? The CARES Act helped PPP. We were very blessed and fortunate to be on that first round, but there were so many centers that were not. To participate in the child care subsidy, what the state of Alabama said was, whether you're open or closed, we're going to help you with your subsidy. After April 6th, you were paid for 50% of the children that are enrolled in your program. But there are a lot of centers that either A, didn't have access to the PPP, or B, were running on really, really thin margins to begin with. So there are a lot of variables. How many children are enrolled in your program? In 
one facility, we have 16 children at the facility at all times, but 26 children on roll. And then at the other facility, we have two programs in there, and they, they're at two different times. So we have a Head Start program that we partner with, and they have about 20 children. And then in the after-school program, we have 32 children, but they're obviously not there at the same time. I keep hearing a, a phrase, high touch. So that definitely sounds like a high touch sort of facility. So coming Very up, high touch. Yes. Yeah, so coming up with this number of, you know, 12 children at a time, is that realistic? And I wonder if your organization, the Alabama Child Care Coalition or Project Say Something, has been an advisor in that decision at all. We have tried our best. It's definitely high contact. It is unreasonable to expect us to socially distance the children or ourselves from the children. In fact, it's negligent. Our legislators understand that child care is a vital part of the economy. If they don't have some place to put the children, then parents cannot work. So the majority are low-income families who depend on your services. What sort of challenges have you heard from these parents and guardians with these closures happening? Though it has been difficult to find care for the children, I would say 98% of our parents, they've been fine with just finding a way or finding family members to care for the children because we've been very transparent about our reasons. And I will also say that even when we open our doors, only about 50% of the parents are even open to coming back. Now, under the new Safer at Home order that was just amended, daycares were encouraged to implement strict social distancing practices, and you describe that as negligent. How do you interpret that for your business? Once you open your doors, you are caring for infants and toddlers and small children. Children need to be hugged and they need to be held. And so you kind of hold your breath and know that you're going to have to care for the children to the best of your ability, and you're not going to be able to ask the child to sit in one space for eight hours and not go play with their friends. What do you think it would take for parents to feel more at ease into bringing their children back to your facilities or any daycare facility in Alabama? I believe if the curve flattened, that that would make a lot of parents feel safe, a decline in numbers. One of the issues with the way we chose to reopen as a state was that we didn't have those decline in numbers. In fact, if I recall correctly, the day before the new Safer at Home order came, we had the largest number of cases we'd seen. So if a parent's being logical, they're going to think, well, if it wasn't safe for my child last month, certainly it's not safe now. Um, And they make their decisions based on that. So I would think it would take just a, a steady decline. Let's talk about sanitation. The PPE, masks, gloves, all that kind of stuff, cleaning supplies. Is there any indication when you're going to receive that or are you expected to supply that yourself? We are 100% expected to supply that. And so what I've had to do is just get creative, you know, instead of thinking I'm going to go to Walmart or Sam's Club, get online, you know, be proactive. In terms of masks, the CDC does not recommend masks on toddlers, so they will not be wearing them. And the mask thing, we're still very 
vague about how that's going to work in a setting with very small children. Many times they'll, they will pull them off of our faces or it's very frightening to them. Do you have a plan in place where, let's say, a child comes in and starts, you know, having that dry cough and maybe some other symptoms of COVID-19, how they could be isolated from the other children? We have a separate room that the child can go to in each facility. We definitely have a very strict protocol with if a child is sick or ill, we call the parent right away. Parent has a maximum of 30 minutes to get to come and pick the child up. And we've always had those, those uh, safety protocols and procedures. We take that very seriously. But with coronavirus, we are making the expectations a little bit different. So we're ramping up like what we consider sick. For example, the child had a runny nose or was listless. We, we may be a little bit more lenient and say, okay, this child has a cold. You can lay down if they're not running a fever. But during coronavirus, we'll look at it differently. This mm-hmm. child has a runny nose. This child looks listless. This child needs to go home. We're also checking temperatures at the door. So we have a forehead thermometer that we're using on all facilities. Mm-hmm. So before child comes in, temperature must be taken. We're hoping to reopen on May 18th. Once we reopen... I think it's important to educate parents with why it's important to go to work and still continue to stay home, especially if your child attends a child care facility, because whatever you do uh, outside of this facility, you bring back to the facility and you make other children and vulnerable staff susceptible to each organization that you're a part of, how are those organizations working maybe with the local government and your community to get the education out there on how to stay healthy and safe, especially for child care centers? So Project Say Something is the organization I founded six years ago. And simply put, our focus is racial reconciliation. The Alabama Child Care Coalition is an effort that was sponsored by Project Say Something. The first thing we did was try and get as many centers as we could to be at one place. So we created, like most people do, a Facebook group. And then from there, I just made sure any information out there for child care owners, and I will say it's not a lot. From your unique perspective, what needs to be done to get more education out there about this? Some states, their Department of Human Resources or Department of Human Services They have, like, separate tabs on their pages specifically for child care providers and coronavirus. They update every single day, like, their policies, any new information. Um, Some states are making sure that centers have are provided with, like, webinars and training materials. So we're, we're kind of forced to scrounge for information. Is there anything else that you would like to add today before we end this interview? Child care subsidies, the children that receive it are 79% black children, disproportionate to what's happening nationwide. I think it's about 40% nationwide. So when, when, when you look at that and you open, our centers are predominantly black, predominantly low income. I would say probably 90, 98% of our popula- the population that we serve. Uh, fits that demographic. When you look at those factors, what you do is extremely, not only can it exacerbate 
the issue within community, but it also puts a whole lot of responsibility on your shoulders. And I thought it was really important to support centers that serve these demographics. Bennett also founded Project Say Something, along with her other endeavor, the Alabama Child Care Coalition. We've included a link to those organizations, as well as links to all the other information you'll hear this hour. Just go to WLRH.org, look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour. Despite what you may have heard, America is not exactly leading the world in testing for COVID-19. Our country has tested more people overall, but we lag far behind other countries in per capita testing, with only about 26 out of every 1,000 people being screened for the disease. Denmark is leading the world with a per capita testing rate roughly double that of America. Here in Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey and other government officials have said that reopening the state will be driven by the data. So, how are we doing? For more answers, Katie Ganaway spoke with Dr. Karen Landers of the Alabama Department of Public Health. The Department's Bureau of Clinical Laboratories recently expanded the criteria for which someone could receive a COVID-19 test, which includes uh, symptoms like vomiting, onset loss of taste or smell. So with that expansion coming, you know, eight weeks in, do you think our state has enough readily available testing to accommodate additional patients? Well, I do think that we have obviously increased our capacity at the BCL, but also additional commercial entities commercial laboratories have come on board in the state of Alabama. So I do believe that uh, this testing can be accomplished. Now, on the 24th of April, Governor Kay Ivey was on a radio show called Here and Now, and she said at that time, less than 1% of the population had been tested for COVID-19, saying we need more supplies to do more testing. And you have described Madison County saying it's a widely tested community. What are we doing right compared to the rest of the state in terms of obtaining adequate quantities of testing material? Well, of course, Madison County, being a more urban population, has access to more commercial laboratory entities than the more rural portions of the state of Alabama. Some of the uh, larger laboratory facilities or entities have been testing in Madison County. And again, this is true not only in Madison, but also in some of the other larger counties hospitals or physicians' offices or urgent cares have agreements with commercial laboratories to do their testing and, again, have been able to provide more testing in that population. Going back to talking about statewide, you know, as businesses are opening up under Governor Ivey's amended Safer at Home order, more spikes are predicted to occur. And you said that you feel that there is more testing available across the state. You feel that way? I do believe we have increased the testing throughout the state. Now, certainly one thing that the Alabama Department of Public Health has done is continue our capability in various counties to provide uh, services to the more rural citizens, especially where the health department has specimen collection sites and then specimens are sent to the BCL. However, again, uh, physicians in rural communities have also developed agreements with commercial laboratories to be able to send testing to other labs besides the BCL, but it continues to be an ongoing need.
I heard on the briefing yesterday for the Huntsville area, Dr. Pam Hudson of Crestwood Hospital talking about how masking and social distancing, all that is working. Would you agree with that? Yes, I do believe that that has been a factor in Alabama in our keeping our cases lower than they could have been. And as the state opens back up more, this is not a time for people to let their guard down. And you have to look at your individual health factors, individual risk factors, and also your ability to maintain the measures to reduce the spread of the virus. When it comes to asymptomatic carriers, I would like you to sort of expound upon what that means. Does that simply mean you don't ever show symptoms, or does that could that also mean you show symptoms for maybe a limited period of time in that two-week-plus duration? Well, when we're talking about people that are asymptomatic, mm-hmm. these are people who have never had any respiratory or similar symptoms related to the picture that is COVID-19. So really, asymptomatic means not sick at all, not developing any symptoms at all. Pre-symptomatic can be people that maybe have very mild symptoms. And again, just in the patients that I have been following, my practice here in the health department, I have had some patients that only had one day of headache and uh, one day of slight fever and maybe, uh, you know, one day of body aches or body chills. You also can see people, again, that are pre-symptomatic, which, again, might have an extremely uh, light or extremely low number of uh, symptoms. Thus, they really don't consider themselves to be sick. I mean, they get up in the morning, they don't feel, you know, completely well, but they don't feel that they need to stay off from work. And I think this is something where people need to be more cautious because, this virus can have some very mild symptoms and Mm -hmm. persons can still be transmitting the virus. But again, this is where the measures we've talked about, first of all, people shouldn't go to work when they're sick, but also in the uh, discussion of uh, voluntary use of face coverings where you cannot maintain your social distancing, or again, just using face coverings, and this is recommended, highly recommended by the CDC, because of asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread. Let's talk about contact tracing because that's the next step after somebody tests positive for the virus. You said that there have been over 11,000 people statewide identified as contacts, and right now we have more than 10,000 positive tested cases in Alabama. Can you tell us what the sort of current ratio is as to contacts traced versus positive cases in the state? Well, it actually changes. That, those uh, numbers last week were uh, updated numbers, and it, it does change depending on the investigation because we still see, obviously, persons that live in a household, intimate partners or close associates, even close work, work contacts are the persons that are more likely to be infected, and those are identified through contact tracing. Contact tracing is a time-honored tool in public health to determine persons exposed to communicable disease. I mean, we do contact tracing all the time. TB control is a very good example of contact tracing that we do for communicable diseases. But in terms of the ratio, again, that was the the number last week, and that number certainly can change. We have to remember that every person with COVID-19 has the potential to affect two to two and a half people. Mm -hmm. So, again, look at it that way. Right now, the contacts that we have identified, again, part of the contact tracing is to identify 
and provide the information for home quarantine, not only to the persons that are positive for COVID-19, but also persons that are contacts at risk to contract the virus. So they do get that instruction to isolate or quarantine. Are they also told in the interview that they might need to get tested? Well, it depends on the situation. If we have persons, and there's there's actually a, a, a diagram that we follow for this as part of contact tracing, um, again, per, some persons that are asymptomatic that are in essential work positions that, again, they're asymptomatic and in essential work conditions, uh, work situations under certain conditions can continue to work with restrictions such as wearing a mask. However, absolutely, if a person who is a contact, and again, this is part of the investigation, if the person is a contact and they have any symptoms at all, first of all, they're not allowed to work even if they were to be in an essential job, and secondly, some of these patients will be tested, although in some contact tracing, if a person lives in the home and they also have symptoms and they're presumed to be a COVID-19, whether they're tested positive or not. Let's talk about hospitalization rates in Alabama. A press briefing for the Huntsville area April 3rd, you said the overall data showed that those rates uh, in Alabama during the outbreak would be at 15 percent, and that was compared to the nation's rate of 20 percent at that time. Um, Do you have an updated rate for the U.S. and for Alabama to compare right now? Well, I looked at some data a few days ago, and our hospitalization rate was ranging about 10 to 12 percent. And again, this varies. We know that obviously we've had persons that have been hospitalized that have since uh, been discharged. So our overall hospitalization rate has varied some, but has been in the range of 10 to 12 percent more recently. Do you think that is a result of the educational approach that we've been doing here in North Alabama? Do you think that's benefited Alabamians in mitigating the crisis? Well, obviously, the measures that were taken very early on in terms of the social distancing and additional measures had impact on our hospitalization rate. But as we have more persons out in public, whether in the workplace or in shopping or in restaurants or other community situations, in order to keep that number below what will overwhelm a hospital, it will be important to continue to follow those measures. Right. And monitoring hotspots, you know, giving out online content on social media from the Department of Public Health, things like that. So you would say that those sorts of things are working right now. Yes, and we also have to remember that sometimes uh, people aren't necessarily on social media. They're not necessarily watching television or listening to the radio or uh, receiving information through the Internet. So we've done some very, uh, what I call gumshoe epidemiology, which is an old term uh, that we use where, you know, we've had persons go out into the public in certain populations and provide flowers and put flowers up in places and give flowers to communities and uh, give this information to persons, uh, you know, door to door if needed uh, in order to ensure that people received education and information about COVID-19. And one more thing, um, as we do open up more businesses and go out into businesses, what would you say to those folks who are still 
sort of skeptical about this whole thing who are, you know, not comfortable wearing a mask or, you know, don't feel they need to wear a mask. While it's an individual decision for persons to wear a face covering, to be aware that the reason for this face covering is potential for asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread and for your ability to uh, affect other people. So if you're out and you cannot maintain your social distancing, uh, you have to remember that this is a way for you not only to protect yourself, but equally important to protect the people around you that you might come in contact with and you might be spreading uh, this virus. So this is where we all have an obligation to protect other people as well as our loved ones and ourselves. That was Dr. Karen Landers speaking with Katie Ganaway here on the Public Radio Hour. Find all the latest COVID-19 statistics, information on testing, and links to all sorts of other great information on our COVID-19 info pages at wlrh.org. You can also find a podcast of tonight's show. I'm Brett Tannehill, and we're continuing our exploration of Alabama's new normal as we try to cope with our strange COVID-19 reality. We're all still learning about this disease and how to protect ourselves. It's uncharted territory. And as the number of cases and deaths continues to grow, we're now heading into the deep water with our business sector trying to safely reopen. So what can you do to protect yourself and your loved ones? At this point, hopefully you know the basics. Stay home and avoid crowds whenever possible. Always wear a mask in public to protect others in case you're unknowingly carrying the disease. And clean your hands if you might have touched an infected surface. Soap bubbles and hand sanitizer destroy the protective outer layer of the virus. But what if you find yourself in a situation that feels dangerous or uncomfortable, like at the grocery store or in a long line at the pharmacy? Dr. Neil Lamb, Vice President of the Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, joins us again to talk more about the science of safety. And it all starts with using the basics and keeping the virus from entering your body. We know that the virus spreads um, in, in two ways through respiratory droplets that may come out of someone who is infected, may come out of their nose or their mouth when they cough or sneeze, or even when they talk really loudly or sing. And so if those respiratory droplets that contain the virus, if you inhale them or they land in your mouth or nose, that is a key way that you can become infected. The other way you can become infected is if those respiratory droplets land on a surface and you come along and touch that surface with your fingers and then touch your fingers to your eyes, your nose, or your mouth, you can transfer the virus into uh, your body that way. If you're in a place that makes you feel uncomfortable, what are some of the things that you can do to make yourself as safe as possible? Maybe what are some of the warning signs to look for around you? I think I'd start by saying um, be conscious of that internal message that says, hey, this might not be a place that I ought to be. You know, we've gone through several weeks of being very, very cautious about being around crowds, about being around individuals that could be infectious, or if we ourselves are unknowingly infectious, not standing too close to someone else that we could infect. So I think if you first want to pay attention to that voice, that that kind of inner uh, spidey sense, it is also quite appropriate not to step into crowded places right now. 
I think that it's good advice to still minimize your trips to to the store and to restaurants and to places where lots of people gather. There is nothing wrong with with continuing to practice some form of of isolation, and you definitely want to practice social distancing. Uh, I think wearing a mask is another important piece of of the puzzle. Uh, you want to think about um, how many other people are in this space. Am I being brought into this space one at a time? Like, for example, the orthodontist visit that you mentioned for your daughter. I know that many orthodontist offices and dentist offices are taking great precautions at minimizing the interaction between multiple different people, between different patients, and then using all the appropriate protective um, and personal gear. So I think really the key, avoiding large crowds, stepping away if you see uh, that you're walking into a crowded situation. There is nothing wrong with backing away from someone that you feel is not practicing appropriate social distancing. Uh, remember that, at least for now, we are still not shaking hands and hugging individuals. That's a little challenging, but again, just just the precaution of minimizing that close contact is really key. And Dr. Lamb, we've talked about this uh, a couple of times in, in past episodes. It feels still, uh, mentioning the orthodontist appointment again, um, we've taken such care to, you know, uh, maintain social distancing, keep our hands clean, avoid situations where we may get infected. And then you find yourself in a situation that uh, you're very, very unsure of. Uh, and it, the, the sense of comfort or the comfort zone has really been destroyed in a lot of ways for people. And people are having trouble putting that together and figuring out what the new normal is. Do you have any advice on how people can sort of recalibrate themselves in that in that regard? I think that it's very appropriate to ask questions if you're going in for elective surgery, if you're going in for a doctor's visit or an, uh, an, an optometrist appointment or a dentist appointment, to ask them what are the procedures that they're taking to minimize viral spread and, and becoming comfortable with that uh, and recognizing that Right now, it is okay to not be comfortable with going back to the way it was in in December and January. Uh, and if you find yourself really uncomfortable, there's nothing wrong with uh, asking about the possibility of postponing some of those appointments and meetings. In some cases, it may be a medical necessity, and you really shouldn't postpone it. So let me be real clear. I am not advising people to cancel surgeries. Right. But having those conversations with your with your healthcare providers or with your with your other with the people that you're coming in contact with can help provide you a sense of reassurance. Yes, this is an appropriate set of precautions, or mm, I'm not so comfortable with this. Let me explore some other alternatives. We're talking with Dr. Neil Lamb, the Vice President for Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Dr. Lamb, are there some situations that you personally have found yourself in where you were kind of like, whoa, this does not feel right? Tell us about some of your personal experiences handling this. I am very cautious when I'm walking into um, a grocery store. So we are doing still most of our shopping online and, and doing pickup, and we're doing a lot of contact list delivery where someone drops, you know, takeout from a restaurant, drops it off at our door. Uh, I uh, have done some telehealth um, with some of my physicians. Uh, I have an eye appointment 
um, later this week, and I've already talked to them, and I'm comfortable with, with the process that they've set in place. My son has had a dentist appointment, and again, we, were, we talked about what are the process they're going to go through, and we were really comfortable with that. So it, it is recognizing that at some point, we are all going to need to take some steps back towards interacting with people, but also realizing that there's no rush for us to jump right back in and being around large crowds and spending lots of time um, elbow to elbow with other people. State officials, including Governor Kay Ivey, have repeatedly said they want to use uh, the data to guide the reopening of Alabama as businesses and stores and churches and things begin to reopen. What sort of data do you think that we need to see and need to watch as things continue to open back up? I think there are a couple of key pieces of data that we want to be looking at. We certainly want to be following the number of new cases that are identified each day. Yes, you can look at that at a national level or even a state level, but you really need to be looking at it in your county, in your Very localized, yeah. Very, very localized. You want to see continuing drops in in the number of cases. Uh, Here in the North Alabama and the Tennessee Valley area, uh, we have been really fortunate. Uh, We have a very low overall number of cases relative to other parts of our country. And that's in large part because our people have done well. They have practiced appropriate distancing. So I keep an eye on what those numbers are. And I also look to see the amount of testing that is available. And are individuals that have a potential exposure, are people that need a test able to get a test? And fortunately, we are seeing enough. We are beginning to see more and more testing come online. Uh, nationally, I don't think we are quite at the level that we would want to be to be assured that we can do the widespread testing that we need, but we are beginning to move in that direction. And finally, Dr. Lamb, talk to us a little bit about herd immunity. We've discussed this in the past, but I think it, it warrants a refresher. First of all, what is herd immunity? And then what roles do testing and vaccines play in developing that in our population? Herd immunity is the idea that enough people have um, gained immunity from, from a bacteria or from a virus that makes it very difficult for that bacteria or virus to pass from one person to another. So, for example, uh, when you think about COVID-19, herd immunity would mean enough people either already have had the virus and have antibodies to protect them from getting the virus again, or we have a vaccine available so we can preemptively provide people with um, immunity through that vaccine. The number or the percent of individuals in a population that you need to achieve herd immunity, I'm seeing lots of data somewhere suggesting, in some cases, 60 to 80 percent of the population needs to have acquired, have developed this immunity before it really slows the spread of the virus. We are nowhere near 60 or 80 percent immunity. So we either need to wait the time for that percentage of individuals to to develop, to, to catch COVID. And you certainly do not want that happening rapidly. You do not want to be going out and intentionally infecting yourself because there's a significant percentage of individuals that are going to become very ill with this. Um, and we're a ways away from a vaccine. We don't have something that we're going to be able to have everyone roll their sleeves up this fall, and now suddenly we've got immunity. So we are, and Brett, we've talked about this, 
we are engaged now in a dance where we watch our numbers in our local community and we relax some of our regulations and requirements. We still practice social distancing. And if the numbers go back up, then we, we increase the number of regulations and restrictions, and we just play this dance, this balancing game, um, until we are at a point where a vaccine uh, is available. And that's the strategy, play defense, slow things down, and, and like you said, prevent it from really beginning to rage out of control. How do you think that we're doing so far? We have done really well in the second half of March and the month of April. Now that we're beginning to relax restrictions, it's almost like um, animals coming out of hibernation in the springtime, and, and they want, to, they want to, to be around each other, and they want to go gather and get food, and they want to enjoy the sunshine. The temptation is to say, okay, we're done. We, we did what we were supposed to do, and now I can go back into restaurants, and I can gather elbow to elbow with people, and I don't have to wear a mask, and we don't have to worry about this anymore. And that is the wrong approach to take. Nobody wants to hear those words. I get that. Believe me, I get that. But we have to still be vigilant. Doesn't mean we can't go into stores. Doesn't mean we can't go to eat in restaurants or gather together. But we've got to do it in a way that is not what we were doing in January and February. Thanks again to Dr. Neil Lamb with Hudson Alpha, Dr. Karen Landers with the State Department of Health, Camille Bennett with the Alabama Child Care Coalition, and Sue Wagner with the Huntsville Botanical Garden for being our guests. Our Public Radio Hour series on the new normal continues next week. You can also listen to the podcast from past programs on the award-winning WLRH mobile app and at WLRH.org. Just look under programs for the Public Radio Hour. You'll also find our info about COVID-19 resources for students and families and our How to Help the Tennessee Valley pages. Tune in the Public Radio Hour Thursday nights at 7, only here on 89.3 Huntsville. We hope you have a safe, healthy, and happy week.